It's interesting, we're at something of a, we're at something of a finish line in the text that is uh, with us here this morning in Exodus chapter 7, primarily from 7 to 10, and just dipping a little bit into uh, Exodus 12. And in one sense, we're finishing the first section of the book of Exodus before we embark on uh, what will be uh, the next section in the book of Exodus. And the Lord is bringing to end, um, a very, in a very real sense, uh, the rule and the reign of Egyptian idols and idolatry in the section that's before us this morning. And he is bringing to life uh, the new freedom, uh, the new race that will be before the people of Israel as they prepare for life with him. And beginning this week and continuing uh, next week, we will treat this long section in the book of Exodus known as the plagues. And before I read the section that's before you this morning, you might just take a look at it on page 8 in your bulletin, or you can follow along with me in your Bibles or in the Pew Bibles in front of you. There are several passages that we're going to look at this morning, but these passages are really representative of the whole of the section of the plagues. There's a variety of ways uh, to treat the plagues. We, we could do the plagues uh, one by one and hit every single one of the plagues from chapter 7 all the way through chapter 10, then the little pause, and then finish them in chapter 12. That would be an incredibly profitable and fruitful study. Um, but because I love you, this is evidences of God's grace and mercy in my life, I am going to take the whole of the plagues with you this morning. This has never been accomplished in human history before. Certainly hasn't been accomplished by this pastor before, so he needs your prayers as we look at them together. But instead of addressing them individually, what we're going to do is we're going to do a 30,000-foot sort of, sort of airplane flyover of the plagues and ask the Lord, what are the main lessons that we need to glean from the repetitive nature and cycle of the plagues that we see. And we're going to especially spend our time in plague 1 through 9, and we'll come back and we'll look at plague 10 in the Passover uh, next week together. But this section, we're looking at plague 1 and we're looking at plague 9, so you'll see those two in your bulletin. And then I'll go ahead and read plague 10 because we'll allude to it by the end of our time together today. So with that, just as a way of introducing what we're going to try to do by God's grace this morning in the Word, let's go now to His Word and begin our reading in Exodus chapter 7, beginning in verse 14. This is God's Word. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water and stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking the water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, 
Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all of the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. He lifted up the staff and he struck the water in the Nile and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all of the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned, and he went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile." Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, go. Serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, in all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that we would now learn from this your word, what it is you would have us to know. That you would portion this word out to our hearts by grace taking the words of black and white and inscribing them on our hearts, that we might receive this message, not as Pharaoh received your message, with hard and deflective hearts, but instead, Lord, with softened hearts, hearts of flesh which you by the Spirit and the gospel of grace have given to us, that we might receive your word as a seed and planted, that it might bear much fruit in our lives. 
for the glory of Christ's name. Father, would you hear this prayer and now by your spirit move among us as we listen to your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's an opening section in John Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad. It's his book on missions. And the very opening sentences of that book, I think in many ways, summarize what we see the Lord doing right here in the passage that's before us. Piper writes this, Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity. But worship, well, that abides forever. Missions exist because worship doesn't. True worship, shall we say. Worship does exist everywhere. As we see even in the passage before us, it existed thoroughgoingly in the life of the Egyptians. It was called idolatry. It was false worship. And everyone in some way, shape, and form worships. But the kind of worship that the Lord is looking for The kind of worship he's seeking our own hearts out for this morning. The worship of true worshipers is what is seeking in this passage for the Lord to accomplish with his people and with us together today. That we would be a people who forsake idols, who forsake idolatry, and who worship the true and living God. That's really the mission of the text that's before us this morning in Exodus 7 through Exodus 10. You know, one of the most moving passages in all of the New Testament is in John chapter 4. It's a passage where Jesus is engaging with who we have come to know as the woman at the well. This woman at the well is a serial adulterer. She's had many husbands. And as the Lord speaks to her, the man that she's with, even at that point, is not her husband. And she begins to engage Jesus because she says, Sir, I discern that you are a prophet. You know more about my married life than I even know about my married life. Sir, I discern that you're a prophet. I'd like to engage you on a theological discussion around worship. Should we worship on this mountain or should we worship on that mountain? Your people say we should worship on this mountain, but my people say we should worship on that mountain. And the Lord corrects the woman, tells her exactly what is right, He says, basically, your people worship in ignorance. You're wrong. You should worship on this mountain. But then he says, don't get all wound up about that. Because the time has come where the Lord is seeking for true worshipers. Those who will worship in spirit and in truth. You see, that's what the Lord is seeking out here in this passage. He's not just looking for those who will go through the formals or the rituals of worship. He's looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And in fact, he's seeking a people here in this text, and he's seeking us this morning 
to be the people who will worship him in just that way. Well, how is that going to happen? How are the Hebrews, how are we, how are even some of the Egyptians, which we learn later, who even come to know the Lord and wind up leaving with the Hebrew people to actually make the trek in the wilderness to the promised land? How are these various groups of people who are going to follow the Lord and become true worshipers of God, how is that actually going to happen? Well, that's what we want to look at in this text together. And I want you to see the first way that the Lord is seeking this morning true worshipers in our midst is that he is about defeating the idols of our world and life. He's about defeating the idols of our world and of life. Do you see this is what's actually happening right here by example in plague number one. You see there in verse 15 that Moses is actually told to wait to confront Pharaoh until Pharaoh goes down to the Nile River in the morning. Now, if you'll look actually at the little handy-dandy chart I've given you on page 9 in your bulletin, you'll note that this is kind of a rhythm in the text. Notice that under cycle 1, if you look at that first column under warning, it says, go to Pharaoh in the morning. And then if you'll see under cycle two, number four, goes straight under warning. It says, in the morning, present yourself to Pharaoh. And then if you'll look under cycle three, plague number seven, in the morning, present yourself to Pharaoh. Each time these certain rhythms of presentation are actually given is that there are certain confrontations that God is actually bringing up in the life of Pharaoh. And This particular God, he wants him to engage at the Nile River. Now, you might remember that Moses has met a royal before at the Nile River, quite early in this whole story in Exodus chapter 2. Now, it was 80-something years ago, and he was in a basket when it happened. So things have changed dramatically. But he was placed in the Nile River in order that the Pharaoh's daughter might actually discover him and he might be saved. Well, now he's going to go seek out another royal at the Nile River and stand on the banks early in the morning. And here he's not looking for himself, as it were, to be rescued, as his mom very and his, and his older sister were working on him being rescued. He's actually after the rescue and the redeeming of God's people. He is now coming as the ambassador of God to address Pharaoh. And he's addressing him in a very, shall we say, sacred place. I think when we think of going down to the Nile, we probably think kind of similarly of what we read in Exodus 2. What was Pharaoh's daughter doing there? If you can kind of go back in your memory in that text, it says she was going down to the Nile to bathe. Now, that probably means there's some element of cleanliness that's a part of that process of bathing. That's certainly how it would occur to us as North Americans in the 21st century today. But there was more to it than bathing. Not every bathe is exactly the same. And in fact, there were all kinds of bathings, both in Hebrew, in the, among the Hebrews people and also among the Egyptians, some of which were ritual, religious, and spiritual in nature. It was very common for the Egyptians to go down to the Nile in the morning to pay homage to the gods of the Nile. We're not told here that Pharaoh is actually going down to bathe. We don't actually know the full expression of what it is that he's trying to accomplish. But it's interesting that the Lord guides him directly to the Nile River. He doesn't want him to talk to Pharaoh till then. And he wants to capture Pharaoh, if we can put it this way, paying homage to his gods. It's almost as if 
Moses himself is going to enter in to the place and moment where the gods of the Nile and the gods of the Egyptians are on display. And Pharaoh himself is in the midst of a religious, spiritual practice. And it's there where God wants to confront him. It's there where God wants to humble both Pharaoh and Pharaoh's gods. Notice it's here in the context of the Nile River where we're told that Moses declares to Pharaoh, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. Now, maybe you'll remember from our time uh, quite a while back, a few months ago, where we were treating uh, the edict from Pharaoh. Do you remember the edict from Pharaoh was that all the baby boys born of the Hebrew women were to be thrown into the Nile River. That's why Moses was being rescued out of the Nile River, out of the place of the edict of the king. And isn't it interesting that we're going to go back to that Nile River to begin to humble the king. And notice the king had already turned that Nile into a Nile of blood before, 80 years earlier. He had been throwing children into that Nile and killing the Hebrew children. And now God has come to turn the tables. He's going to actually turn this river into this, this, uh, this Nile River, this main God and main construct of the people of Egypt. He is going to turn it into a river of blood. And by the nature of his very staff, he turns the tables on the people of the Egyptians. And we're told that this Nile will turn completely to blood. All of the other water in and around Egypt will turn into blood. The Nile will stink. All of the fish will be drowned. And the people will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And this is exactly what it is that we see happen. Now, as you can see, as God very often does, He takes the things that we have done and He goes right back to those places. And he reminds us of the places where we have been disobedient and have broken his law. The places where we have done wrong. And here when we are unrepentant, the Lord takes us to that place and he causes actually the conviction of pain. And here with regards to Pharaoh, he does that with regards to his judgment. He does a kind of a similar thing actually when you look at plague number nine, don't you? After seven more plagues, Pharaoh's resisting the Lord continually. And Moses is told to stretch out his hand towards the heaven that the darkness may cover the whole land. Moses did just that and we're told they were in pitch darkness. Literally a deep darkness or a dark darkness. And in all the land of Egypt it existed for three days. The Lord once again showing himself greater than one of the great gods of the Egyptians. You see there were gods like Happy who was one of the gods of the Nile. But there was also the god of Ra, who was the god of, of the sun, who the Egyptians worshipped. And we can see in, in number one and in number nine, in very many ways, and all the way through the, the, the plagues, God is undoing the power of the Egyptian gods. He's in a sense, if we could put it this way, poking them in the eye. And he's saying, listen, you think that these gods have power. But the reality is... You, I will show you in exactly the ways that you think they have power that I have power to overcome them. Notice the statement that Moses made right there at the very beginning. By this, you will know that I am the Lord. He's going to say that over and over through the plagues. By this, you're going to know that I am the Lord. This is the point of the plagues. 
that we are to know that the Lord is God and there is no other. And that the idols are worthless idols and they are ill-effective without power to save or redeem the people of Egypt out of the hand of Yahweh. That's the point. And when we look at chapters 7 through 10 and we see all the plagues, that's exactly through all the gods. If you look at your chart, you'll see the list of the gods that are actually being addressed with each one of those strange plagues. If you're wondering, why frogs? Why flies? Why gnats? Well, he's not just picking those things out of thin air. He's doing those things because they represent particular gods in Egypt. And they represent particular sections of worship within the idolatry of Egypt. And he is showing that these gods are failing to resist the plagues that Yahweh is bringing upon the people of Egypt. It's a power and might duel between Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, and the Egyptian gods. So the first thing we see the Lord is actually doing as he enters into the text and he tells us if he's going to make of us true worshipers, he's got to humble and destroy and defeat the idols and the idolatries of our life. You know, this is why very often when we begin to serve things like money, we begin to serve things like possessions. We begin to idolize human relationships. When, when we begin to look for achievement or approval as a means by which we'll be satisfied. Or even begin to trust in our own good works or our own moral codes as if this is going to be the way to get through. Have you noticed how often the Lord, if you're a true follower of Him, you notice how often He frustrates that? How often He humbles you? You know, just start taking pride in something in your life. Watch out. Watch out. His faithfulness is he's going to bring humility to that place, not because he seeks to harm you, but he seeks to restore you, bring you back to gospel sanity, bring you back to remembering who your God really is and the thing that will actually be sufficient for you. He wants you to have trust where trust ought to be. He wants you to be a true worshiper of the living God who would worship him in spirit and in truth. And this is why he's often going through your life and my life defeating our idols and frustrating our plans, and causing us to be restored to Him, the one true God. One of the ways that we see this actually in our lives, so that you can sort of see the effects of idolatry, even if you're kind of wondering, what are the how do I know if I'm being idolatrous? Where, where, what are the evidences of that? Well, I think the second thing you want to see through all the plagues is not just that God is about defeating the idols of our lives and the world. He is also showing us the decreating effect of idolatries in our life. Now, what do I mean by that? The decreating effect of idolatries in our life. Well, if you start pursuing idols in your life, what you're going to see is that over and over your life's going to be ramped up with anxiety, ramped up with depression. It's going to be lacking contentment. You're going to be striving in this life and feeling like you're making nowhere. And if you actually arrive, you're going to be fearful that you'll lose it. Your soul will immediately be eaten up and there'll be a sense in which there'll be a kind of decreating impact that will happen in your own life and in your own world. Now, this is in technicolor when we actually look at it in the plagues. And I learned this greatly from one of my uh, favorite professors, Old Testament professor, Dr. John Currid, is one of my professors uh, when I was in seminary, wrote a marvelous two-volume commentary on the book of Exodus. He wants us to see not merely are, is the defeating of idols and idolatries happening. He wants us to see there's a pattern between the creation story and the decreation story of the plagues. What do I mean? 
Well, let's look at day one of creation. You remember day one of creation? What was created on day one in creation? Well, if you go back to the beginning of Genesis 1, light was created out of darkness on day one. But what happens in Egypt when God's judgment comes? Well, darkness overcomes the light. The exact opposite of what happened in creation begins to happen in Egypt when God's judgment comes. An unraveling of the Egyptian world begins to take place. On day two in creation, the waters are separated and ordered on uh, the planet. But in plague one, we see that waters create chaos when they are changed from water into blood. A life-giving substance into a death-producing substance. The exact opposite of the creation story. On day three, we see the appearance of dry land and vegetation on the land. But in plague seven and eight, we see the destruction of vegetation by hail and by locusts. A decreation happening in the Egyptian world. On day four in the creation story, we see the luminaries, the stars and the sun and the moon. But of course, in plague at nine, we see that those luminaries are completely snuffed out over Egypt. On day five, we see the creation of birds and fish. But what do we see in plagues one and two? The death of fish and the multiplication and the death of frogs there in day five. And what do we see on day six? Well, the creation of land animals and humans. But what do we see in the plagues of 3, 4, 5, 6, and 10? We see pestilence of insects. We see boils on beasts and humans. We see the death of livestock. And we ultimately, in plague 10, see the destruction of the firstborn. Do you see how these mirror, in many ways, the creation story? A story that's meant to produce order meant to be fruitful and multiply. But when God's judgment comes, what happens? The opposite of creation. Chaos ensues. Death begins to run rampant. When the judgment of the Lord comes, everything is exposed. And here we see very clearly the, the decreating effect of idolatry when we begin to give ourselves to the things of the world rather than to God. And this is actually what happens in many of our lives, isn't it? When we realize that we're caught in a habit of sin or an area of our lives that we've left completely unchecked, unrepentant of with the Lord, and it begins to spiral somewhat out of, uh, out of control. We can't begin to keep that sin within its parameters. It turns into an addiction. It begins to overwhelm our mind and our passions. And before we know it, we say in the back of our minds, I can stop at any point and you can't. In fact, if you're having that debate in your mind right now, oh, I can stop at any point. Just know you need help. Just know you need help. You're trying to convince yourself of something that's not true. You can't do it in your own power and resources. The Bible's making that clear to you. And it wants you to know that that's exactly the lie that Pharaoh was telling himself each time. And his hard heart got harder because he just quit being, he quit being open to and was resistant to the instruction of the Lord to repent and to let his people go. And notice what happened to Pharaoh and what happened to Egypt. It got worse. Every time that we resist the command of God to repent and return, it gets worse. These things don't get better. Sin is more than just doing something wrong. It's a power that we give into that takes over more of us if not kept in check. 
It becomes a controlling passion, what Paul later calls an inordinate desire, meaning it has gone over ordinary and it has now become inordinate, right? It's okay to desire food. That's actually, you've been designed to desire food. If you desire food, that's a good thing. That's in keeping with your design. You can desire food too much. That's an inordinate desire, and it's called gluttony, right? You you can desire a lot of wonderful things that the Lord has created, but the inordinate nature of them, where those passions get outside of the parameters and the boundaries for which God had created them, become an enslaving passion that ultimately tells us we are more wedded to that thing. That thing has had idolatrous power over us. We're now looking for it to give us something that only God can give us. You see, that's what an idol is. An idol is anything that you're putting in the place of God. And you say, well, I'm not doing that. It's anything that you're looking to that only God can give you. Are you doing that? Are you looking for peace in the things of this world and you find yourself increasingly restless? Are you looking for satisfaction in the things of this world and it's as if as soon as you get what it is you're looking for, you're looking for something else? That's going to keep happening, by the way. You're going to need to find that at the feet of Jesus. He is the only living water, as the woman of John chapter 4 had to learn. She is the only living water that will quench the thirst. She had been looking for her life existence in men. She had gone from one man to another thinking, this guy will be my Messiah. And each man led her down because no man can uphold the standard of being your satisfaction And if the roles were reversed with men looking for women, the same thing would be the case. We've got to look to the Lord for these things. We can't look to creation. Do you see Romans chapter 1 tells us we've committed idolatry when we look to the creation rather than the creator. We look to the creation rather than the creator. That's what we see here. And the creator today is calling us to recognize this effect. A disordering, decreating effect idolatry has in our lives. We need our idols defeated So a couple of quick lessons before we look at the final point. One thing that just stuck out to me so deeply in studying this this week, and one I hope it registers in your heart and in mine this morning, is that each of us battle idolatry. Every single one of us do. We're looking to things that are wooing to us, that we are seeking to serve. And what the scripture wants to tell you this morning is that idol is going to fail you. It is going to fail you. It, is, it will not live up to its promises. Listen, Pharaoh thought the gods of the Nile could protect him. He thought that the sun could protect him. You may look at that and go, well, that's silly. Well, you think your bank account's going to protect you. That's silly too, right? You, you think your doctor's going to somehow make you live forever. That's ridiculous, right? We live under these notions. They're fantasies. He wants to disabuse us and disillusion us of these false realities to lead us into the living truth. That's what he wants to do. And he wants us to know today that our idols will fail us. He wants us to know also that idolatry is the root cause of what's wrong with you and me and what's wrong with the whole of the world. You know, when you go back to Genesis chapter 3 and you look at the fall, what do you see? Idolatry. You see Adam and Eve saying, I'm going to follow the serpent rather than follow God. You know what that is? That's putting the serpent ahead of God. That's called idolatry. That's what that is. God says, eat this tree and you'll die. And Eve looks at it and goes, no, you know, I think, I think it's good for food. I think it's going to make me wise. I think it's going to make me wise. That's what it's going to do, right? Who was right? God was right, right? 
And what gets us in the bad place, in the spiraling out of control, is, is listening to God and going, ah, that's just kind of that's just kind of strict. That's kind of stringent. And going our own way, defining things by our own terms. And we see in the context of this passage and in the content of this passage that God wants us to see at the root cause of our struggles in life and at the world's struggles in life is, is not, believe it or not, it's not an education issue. Because you know all kinds of things you don't do. And I do too. It's not actually just a medicine issue. You can't just get the right pill and everything's going to work out okay. I, you know, some of us have been trying that. And we're, we're figuring that out. It's not a medicine issue. It's not an education issue. At the end, You know what it is? It's a worship issue. It's an idolatry issue. And, and Jesus has come to seek true worshipers, to restore us to appropriate worship. So we need to see that in, in this passage and in the plagues. But thirdly, we need to know that our idolatry, if continued to persist in, will invite the judgment of God. And that's what we're doing when we live unrepentantly in idolatry, we're inviting the judgment of God. If you're a believer here this morning who is, who is in the battle of idolatry, repenting of that idolatry and coming back to Christ on a daily, even moment-by-moment basis, note, I want you to know this. That's normal Christianity. But if you're someone who is naming the name of Christ, who's just living an an absent life in terms of the followership of Jesus, no affection to really follow him and to be conformed to his nature. If you're a true follower of him, expect discipline to come. Because of his love, he's going to draw you back. Or he's going to expose the fact that you never knew him. And eventually you're going to come under the reality of what Pharaoh and the Egyptians are coming under. And today is a day where he's warning you in grace and saying, today is the day of salvation. Return unto me. And he wants you to know that to stay in that idolatry is to invite that discipline and that judgment. You know, some of this was really exposed. I couldn't help but think of the COVID-19 pandemic that we suffered through over the last several years and just looking at uh, the plagues very often even in the literature sometimes referred we look back to the 14th century in the bubonic plague or we look at uh, look at the spanish flu in the early part of the 20th century this is the language we would often use for these kinds of things is the idea of of plague and one one interesting piece on the pandemic written by a man by the name of sarcus was a, a, a titled, Why the Virus Spooked Us. Why the Virus Spooked Us. And he acknowledged, and he wrote this really early on in the pandemic, and what he was observing was not the fact that we should be rightfully fearful of the fact that the virus had um, the potential to bring significant death. He said that deserves respect. That deserves precaution. That deserves wisdom. He said, but what I'm seeing is something different than that. He said, what I'm seeing is something that spooked us, meaning that it didn't just reveal the fact that this is a dangerous virus, but it actually was calling all of us into questioning the normal assumptions in our beliefs of life. He said, I see people now walking around in anxiety and fear at a heightened level to such a degree that shows that their, their eggs were in a different basket than the one that they had stated. And what he was recognizing was the fact that what we're seeing now is that the beliefs that we had tightly held to was that we really thought we were going to be in pretty much in control of our existence. And the uncertainty and the unpredictability of this virus freaked us out. 
It wasn't just the real threat. It was the fact that we realized we weren't in control. And that the doctors who we trust just couldn't wave a magic wand and make it go away. And that meant that someone other than us is behind these things. Some other controlling force. Do you see what's actually happening in those moments is our illusions of control are being exposed. Do you understand that's happening to Pharaoh? Pharaoh is the greatest ruler of the then known world in ancient Egypt. And here's Moses this Hebrew whose people are slaves who wouldn't even survive if he wasn't raised in my house is coming to me and telling me to let his people go. Who's he think he is? I mean, Pharaoh here is the most powerful man in the world. Well, Pharaoh got put in his place, you see. And we come to find out that the living God of the Hebrews is the true God of heaven and earth. So when we begin to see these lessons playing out in our own heart and life, aren't they beginning to address us where we are? They're beginning to speak to us directly where we need to hear it. But I want you to see, beyond the fact that he's defeating idols, and there's a decreating judgment that happens in the reality of idolatry, I want you to see that he's delivering us for restoration of worship. That's what he's actually doing. You know, worship is really the focus of this passage. That may seem odd. You may not have picked up on that right away. But if you look at the beginning of this text, the focus is actually on Israel worshiping. If you were to look back at Exodus chapter 4, verses 21 to 23, uh, what we read are these words out of the lips of God to Moses. He says, when you return to Egypt, Moses, when you go back to Egypt and speak to Pharaoh... See that you perform all the wonders before Pharaoh. I have given you the power to do it, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Are we seeing this happen? Okay, we're seeing this happen. It's right here on the page. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go. And listen why. So that he may worship me. So that he may worship me. Now we know that this passage is about idols and idolatry because who is God going after in this passage? False idols. And where is he presenting and confronting these idols? In the midst of idolatry. Going down to the Nile and meeting Pharaoh in the midst of these ritual realities in, in Egypt. We know that idolatry and idols are the issue. Why does he want to redeem eventually people from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation? Why does he want that happen? Because he wants to restore true worship. That's what he wants to do. Notice he wants his people to worship him. Now, this is different than we tend to think of it. So I want to pause on this for just a second. When we think of like, why does God save us? We like to say, and this is absolutely appropriate, and don't ever hear me pushing back against this. We like to say, because he loves us. Is that true? That's absolutely true because he loves us. And he doesn't love us because we're lovable. He actually tells the people of Israel multiple times, I didn't choose you because you were great. I certainly didn't choose you because you would obey. I chose you because I chose you, because I loved you. All right, I'm committed to you. And he says that to you as believers. It's a wonderful thing, right? But did you know that his love and his love of you is not the end of the story? Did you know his love produces something? He wants to redeem the people of Israel so that they can just simply be redeemed? No. So that they'll worship Him. 
so that they'll worship him. It gets back to the very point of what Piper was making in the opening quote. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Notice in Plague 9, he wants to send the people of Israel. You know, he's like, get out of here. Pharaoh's like, I'm tired of you people. Get out. Just leave your livestock. And they said, we can't leave our livestock because why? Because we need food. We need to milk the cows. We need a livelihood. It's not what he says. We need to sacrifice to our God. We need to worship. Isn't that what the Lord is going to be training the people of Israel over the next 40 years in the wilderness in? Isn't this thing called a tabernacle going to be developed? Isn't the Ten Commandments going to come? Isn't the sacrificial system going to be put in? What do you think God's interested in here? Just, just so that you can sit there and know that He loves you and you think you're kind of the center of the universe? No, so that in His love you reflect it back to Him in loving commitment and worship and you're devoted to Him. That's the purpose. He's delivering you for the restoration of worship. He's come to seek, John 4, true worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And here's, here's the reality of why that's so important. Because the people of Israel are going to be taken out of Egypt, but the spirit of Egypt is still going to live within the people of Israel. We're going to see that in the next 40 years. Do you remember they're going to get to Mount Sinai? God's going to come down. He's going to be issuing the Ten Commandments. And before the Ten Commandments even get to the bottom of the mountain, they've broken number one. Didn't you, didn't you hear me earlier? What's the biggest issue in human history and the brokenness and the fallenness of this world? Idolatry. What's the, what do we see at the bottom of Mount Sinai? We see that they build a golden calf and they bow down to it. And then they say something really dumb. This is the one that brought us out of Egypt. You're like, you just made it. Like you just made it with your hands. This is ridiculous. This is utterly foolishness, which is the nature of idolatry. It's the nature. It's utterly insane the way that it operates. We're going to see that the Egyptian is still very much in the Hebrew as he and she is making their way across the wilderness. And you know what that teaches us? It teaches us it's not just about, maybe you've had this category in your mind, those bad Egyptians, they're just terrible people. Pharaoh, just so terrible. And what we see throughout the scripture is, be careful, that terrible is you. That terrible is in God's people. We're all idolaters. We're all building golden calves. Some way, shape, or form, as John Calvin faithfully said, our heart is an idol factory. Constantly producing them. And what this means is that it would be through the death of the firstborn of Pharaoh that ultimately led to the people of Israel being let go and freed and redeemed to worship. But the problem was the people who were let go to be free to worship were idolaters too. So now we're really in a pickle. See, the problem wasn't just in Egypt. The problem was in the Hebrews. And the problem is in you and me. So we've got to actually have a new and better firstborn die on our behalf. Even the only and beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who is given of the Father for you and me. The one who would come, who in his death would truly set the people free. The one who would be the only true worshiper who would follow the Father. The one who was only powerful enough to redeem and lay low our enemies.
You thought our enemy was Pharaoh and the idols in Egypt. No, our enemy was sin and our enemy was death. And he took it. He took it on. He took the curse of our sin. And then he broke the powers of it when he was resurrected on the third day. Do you see, when Jesus was born, his clarion call was, let my son and let my daughter go. And he was speaking it to sin and he was speaking it to death. He wants us to be those who would come and worship him. And ultimately, he broke the power by taking on the cross on our behalf and giving to us the peace and the rest that we need. You know, that's one of the wonders of this text is when you look at the decreating pieces, you go through creation day one through creation day six and you see the reversal that's happening in Egypt. You know what day isn't touched? Day seven. The day of rest. The day of worship. That day isn't touched in the plagues. Do you know why? Well, once you have come to know he who is your rest... And once you have come to know he who is your salvation, he who is the one who is worthy of worship, you begin to see that day seven is where you and I live as those who are redeemed in Christ. The day of worship and rest and gladness is ours right now in Jesus. Because that's what you've been made for, my friends. You've been made for that kind of life, the kind of eternal calling that worships the Lord. What's the Lord calling you to this morning? Where are the places in your life that you're holding back on Him? What are the secrets of your life that are sinful and unrepentant of? What are the lies that you're telling yourself that you think your idols will rescue you from? Today is the day of salvation. Cast your cares upon the Lord. He cares for you. Father in heaven, we pray that you would humble us to build us up. We pray that you would convict us in order to assure us. We pray, Lord, that we would feel your discipline strokes in order that we might be saved. Hear this prayer and in your wisdom, answer it. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.